listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Today, as we continue our series, Life in the Spirit, we've titled our service, Ain't Nothing But... Ain't nothing like the real thing. Um, our Old Testament reading for today, I think, is pretty familiar to you. You've heard that one before. The, the Hebrews asked for a king, and Samuel's like, oh, no, you don't want a king. And they're like, no, we want a king. We want a king. And Samuel's like, I don't think so. Like, that's not good for you. And they're like, well, everybody else has a king. <laughs> Sounds like children, doesn't it? You know, like if the neighbor kid gets a new bike, I want a new bike. The neighbor kid gets a new video game. I want a new video game. I don't want to be, I don't want to be too harsh on the ancient Hebrews here, but we're, we're sometimes like that ourselves. So Moses had led the Hebrews out of captivity in Egypt, and Joshua had led them into the land, and they had settled into different distinct geographical regions, and they were tribes, but they, were, they weren't really a nation in a kind of a modern sense of the word. They were more of a loose confederation of tribes. And over the years, different judges would kind of rise up and lead them in times of trouble. And we know these stories, right? Like Deborah and Gideon and Samson and the others. But in that kind of string of judges, Samuel, and we just read from Samuel, was kind of the last of the judges. And he was both the last of the judges and he was kind of the first of the prophets, or at least the prophets who would speak to the kings. I mean, Abraham is called a prophet in Scripture and so is Moses. But this role of prophet took a new identity because the prophets would have to serve as gadflies. The prophets have to serve as a voice of correction to the king because the king inevitably was going to behave badly. In fact, in Deuteronomy, there's a description about what an ideal king should look like. Um, Though, unfortunately, it's an ideal that, an ideal that rarely, if ever, was realized. This is what God says that a real king should be like. This is Deuteronomy uh, chapter, uh, where is it? Sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is what it says. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set over a king over me like all the nations around. You may indeed set a, uh, over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as a king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is out of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to eat in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold he must not acquire in great, uh, great, <laughs> in great quantity for himself. When he has taken the throne of his kingdom... He shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall remain with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, 
so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and these stats, never exalting himself before other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. That's interesting, isn't it? Did you catch that part? Like, when you get a king, first, God needs to choose the king, not you. Uh, Second, the king can't take the people back to Egypt. Then, I want you to take this law and keep it before the king. I mean, some people do this sometimes, right? They'll, they'll have like a, a scripture verse for the month or the year or for their life, and they'll put it in different places in their house. Like some of you do that maybe, like you stick it on the mirror or you, you have an encouraging note or you think, man, Robbie said that in a sermon. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to stick it on my mirror so I can see it in the mornings, right? This is what they're telling the king to do. The king needs to write this law down so the king can remember, right? It's not about the king. It's about the people. The king shouldn't get too many chariots. The king shouldn't get too many horses. The king shouldn't get too much silver and gold. The king shouldn't get too many wives. I mean, that seems to make sense, right? But unfortunately, the kings of Israel did just the opposite of that. They behaved just the opposite of this law. Samuel's warning proved true. If we were to read the description of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4, we would find the inverse of a godly king. That is, Solomon did exactly what God said a king should not do. Like in in 1 Kings chapter 4, it says, Wow, look at Solomon. He got all the animals. He's got all the food. He's got all the land from the Euphrates down to Gaza, even as far as Egypt. He's got all these chariots. He's got all these horses. He's got all this gold and silver. And it doesn't say it in that passage, but we know about Solomon that he also had all the wives, right? 300 of them, 300 wives and 700 concubines. If Solomon had taken that law that he was supposed to, you know, write on, write on his mirror, right, put it in front of them, he must have somehow got it wrong, right? He's, he's like checking off all the wrong boxes. And it wasn't just Solomon. We shouldn't just pick on him. All those kings of Israel behaved exactly like Samuel said they would, taking their sons and sending them to war and taking their daughters and making them work for them. In fact, Kings, First and Second Kings, which is one scroll in ancient times, one biblical scholar said we should have titled it Kings, like with a question mark at the end. Kings? Because they mess up so often. So if you start at First Kings and you go all the way through Second Kings, you, it starts with uh, Solomon, because the stories of Saul and David are in Samuel. And so with Solomon, he inherits a united kingdom, not, not the United Kingdom, like, you know, England and Great Britain and all, but he inherits a United Kingdom. And it grows and grows and well and well, right? But then it splits. And they worship other gods. And they go to war. And they accumulate things too much. They're in excess. And they get judged for that. And the Northern Kingdom gets destroyed. 
And then there are just one little small Judah left, made up of just Judah and Benjamin. We're left with just two of the 12 tribes. And then they get taken into captivity. And then the story of kings ends with the prophet of God at the time. His name's Jeremiah. We're familiar with him, right? Jeremiah had prophesied that Babylon was going to come and destroy them. And they're saying, no, that can't happen. God wouldn't allow that to happen. And Jeremiah said, I didn't say God was going to allow that to happen. I said God was sending them to punish you. <laughs> and so when God finally, when that does happen and, and the city gets destroyed and the country gets destroyed and the king gets taken into captivity in Babylon, Jeremiah is part of this little small remnant that's still eking out an existence there in Jerusalem. And they're like, man, Jeremiah, we got it wrong. You were right. We were wrong. You are the man of God. Just tell us what to do and we'll do it. And he says, all right then, we should live here in Jerusalem under the power of Babylon and be faithful to God despite the fact of who's in the political and economic and military power. And they said, that's a bad idea. And they kidnap Jeremiah and they take him to Egypt. That was the last thing on the list of what you weren't supposed to do. Don't go back to Egypt. Egypt is where we came from. Egypt was the captivity. Egypt was where we were delivered from. And this story of deliverance from Egypt ends with the last little group of people kidnapping the man of God and taking him into Egypt. Man, that is a sad story. I think we often make a similar mistake, though. That is, we're willing to settle, we're willing to settle for a substitute for God rather than for the real thing. Like Samuel was a little miffed when they said, we want a king. He's like, huh, can you believe that, God? They want a king. I'm such a good judge. Why would they want a king? And God's like, chill, Samuel. That's not a direct quote, but it's something like that. Calm down, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. That is, instead of just following God and letting God be their king, they wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted a king like the other nations had. They wanted a king that would go out and lead them in battle. And we substitute things for God too. Sometimes we'll substitute piety for God. Like we'll just try and live right and be good. Right? So I don't, you know, I don't have God, but I've got my morals. I've got my scruples. We end up, this is why we don't like the term religion. Is because we think religion means religiosity, and we realize how thin and ineffective that is because we're trying to substitute something for God. Sometimes we substitute our politics for God. We think, like the ancient Hebrews, oh, if we could just have this person, all would be well. But hopefully, it's not a surprise to you that politics is not going to save the world. Did you know that? That's true. We don't need a king. We have God. We need, what we need to do is stop substituting poor counterfeits or substitutes for the thing. The prophets are poets. And there are two other prophets and poets that, that you know. Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Ones who first told us there ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. There ain't nothing like the real thing. Now, granted, 
They're singing about romantic love. And sure, there are counterfeits to romantic love. And then there's the real thing. And the real thing is precious. It's, it's powerful. It's, it's good. Some fake things, I think, do have value. I mean, for example, I love uh, impersonators. Like, I really enjoy a good impersonation of someone. Uh, as another poet said, Oscar Wilde, impersonation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. It's a little rougher than when I remember the quote. Like, the idea that imitation is, uh, is the greatest form of flattery, that's how, I, that's how I typically hear it. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, it's good to be imitated. Like, if, if, you, if you behave like someone, if you act like them or talk like them or dress like them or try to watch the same TV shows they do, right, if you're, that means that you like them. You want to be like them. I mean, at Wilds here, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can play to greatness. I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm mediocre, but I want to be better. I want to be like you. Well, impersonators can be fun. They aren't a substitute for the real thing. And not all imposters are innocent. Like, it's one thing to have a print of a famous painting. It's a different thing to have a forgery, right, or to make a forgery. Like, to kind of present something as being real when it's actually not gives us this kind of pseudo-life. And that's what I'm concerned about. I mean... We can have, like, play money. In fact, we have some for you today, right? And that can be fun, right? This is good. You actually know what this is. This is not a silver dollar. It's not a gold, it's not a gold coin either, right? It's a piece of chocolate. But chocolate's good, right? I can like chocolate. Now, this isn't worth, you know, a lot of money. But it's, it has some value. But... Again, counterfeit money is no joke. And when it comes to the life and the spirit, I think we too often settle for poor substitutes, for human-created ideals rather than the true spirit of Christ. For example, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit in his letter to Galatians. He says this about the works of the flesh. This is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He says... Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, which is a real fancy word for like lawlessness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And I am warning you, as I've warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the works of the flesh. But this is what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. This is like the next, the next sentence. The fruit of the Spirit, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, I think, are pretty obvious. Like, I know what good is, <laughs> and I know what evil is. And those two things, I don't feel like I typically get confused. However, there is a subtler kind of variation of the fruit of the Spirit, kind of civic ideals, what I might call impersonations, if you will. That, and these are not without value whatsoever. 
kind of like a piece of chocolate's not completely valueless, but it's not the same thing as you know a hundred dollar gold coin. These counterfeits, I could call them, or substitutes for the fruit of the Spirit, are insufficient, I would say, ideals for the Christian life. And let's take a look at what I mean. We'll go through these pretty quickly. So the first is love. Love is greater than tolerance. Tolerance is a civic virtue. There is nothing wrong with tolerating people. Like, we should tolerate them. Like, we shouldn't hurt them or expel them or do harm to them, right? Sometimes I'm driving around and I see those bumper stickers that says coexist, and it has its spelling coexist with all these different religious symbols. I mean, I can get on board with that. I'm for coexistence. I don't think that one, one religious group should be killing another religious group. Uh, any of you with me? Right? We don't want anybody killing our religion, our religious folk. And we as religious folk shouldn't be seeking to kill other religious folk. Yes? Yes, there you go. Good civic virtue. Tolerance. There's nothing wrong with tolerance. But again, it's a bad substitute for love. You're not called to tolerate people. You're called to love them. To love them is to care for them, to be concerned for them, to be willing to sacrifice for them. Love is higher. It is greater than tolerance. Tolerance is an, impos is an imposter, right? Tolerance at best can impersonate love, but it's not really love. Joy is greater than happiness. It's higher than happiness. There's nothing wrong with being happy. I like being happy. And there was a, there was a popular movie a few years ago called The Pursuit of Happiness. There's nothing wrong with being happy. Happy is a good thing. But happiness, again, is an imposter of joy. Joy is a strength. Joy is, is something that we have that can motivate us even when we're not happy. It can sustain us. The joy of the Lord is something that I pray for you all. Like sometimes I come into this sanctuary. I know it's like an auditorium, right? But it's more than that, right? It's, it's a holy, sacred place. And I walk around these chairs and I pray for the people who come to sit in them. And I pray that you would have joy. Again, I also want you to be happy. But I don't want you to substitute happiness for joy. Peace is greater than conflict avoidance. Now, I am averse to conflict. I avoid conflict. Like, I, if, I, if I have conflict with you, chances are I'm going to try and avoid you. I'm not going to look at you. I'm not going to call you. If I know you're going to be there, I might skip the meeting. Like, I, I am not naturally a peacemaker. I am naturally a conflict avoider. But God did not call me to be a Conflict avoidance is not a fruit of the Spirit. It is an imposter of peace. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Peace is something we make. As Dr. King would say, peace is not simply the absence of a negative force, like an argument or, or injustice or war. Peace is the presence of a positive force where we seek to, to um, engage and resolve the conflict. Right? So we're not to be conflict avoiders, we'll be conflict resolvers. That's peace. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And when we substitute this poor imposter for it, 
we're, we're kind of living with just, I don't know, chocolate instead of money. This is good again. I'm not opposed to this. I'm getting ready to eat it here in a minute. But if you try to go to Publix and pay for your groceries with this, it's not going to work. Because it's not the real thing. Patience is greater than ambition. I've always struggled with one because I was kind of taught you should always seek to be better. Do more. Have more. Get more. But patience asks us for something else. Patience asks us to be content. To be, to be filled with the Spirit, I think, is to be content with life. To have some margin in our lives. Margin in terms of time and margin in terms of money. Not to be so, have our lives so filled that we were unavailable for others. Like we wear, we wear our busyness like it's a badge of honor. How are you doing? I'm busy. You should, see, you should see my calendar. I don't even have my phone on me now, but if I could pull out my phone and I could show you my Google calendar, it is packed full of meetings and meetings. I must be an important person. I must be doing something right. And again, it's not that ambition is somehow the, the root of all evil, but it is not a substitute for patience. Kindness is greater than niceness. And in the South, this is a real hard one, right? Because we like being nice. We're polite people. We smile. We say hello. We say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir, and thank you, and you're welcome. And there's nothing wrong with being polite. Like, there's nothing wrong with being nice. But being nice is not the same thing as being kind, right? I can be nice to you and still be unkind. Right? We, in fact, so much so that in the South, sometimes we, we use the term bless as a curse. Mm. But bless their hearts. Bless their hearts is not a blessing. Bless their hearts is a cursing. Right? You sound like you're, you know, being nice, but you're not actually being kind. And I don't want you to settle for that impersonator. Goodness is greater than sentimentality. Goodness. I think in the, in the verse that I read earlier, uh, it was translated generosity. Uh, the, the word gets translated a couple different ways, goodness or generosity. But I think it's better than sentimentality. Listen, I'm an emotion, and I'm not, I'm not anti-emotion. Like, I, I think we should lean into our emotions. I think we need to have kind of greater emotional intelligence. But being kind of overly emotional about things in kind of unhealthy ways, like, like wanting things to be like they were. N nostalgia is a, a dangerous imposter of goodness. We want things to be good. We thought they were good before, so if we can get back to the way they were, then we'd have goodness. Look, the way they were is what brought us to now. The good old days is why we got here. So if we went back to the good old days, we'd get here again, <laughs> right? We would need a different, if we want things to be different, we would need to be different than the way they were because the way they were brought us to the way we are. You with me? Right? That's, that's one of those imposters. That's a counterfeit there where you're actually picking it up. And you think, oh yeah, that's good. I want some of that. Except some of that's not good. That is actually invaluable. Not invaluable. It's without value. 
Faithfulness is greater than loyalty. Faithfulness is higher than loyalty. And again, man, in my subculture that I live in, loyalty gets, gets talked about as the greatest of all virtues, right? Be loyal to me. You know, that's what they say at work, right? We want you to be loyal to the company. We want you to be loyal. But loyalty, I think, is an imposter of faithfulness. You can be faithful to something, but you're... To, your loyalty asks you to put, to kind of sacrifice other things. Faithfulness asks you to, to, to stay kind of committed to things. Faithfulness, I think, is what we're really called to. And I think what happens with loyalty, the king, coming back to Samuel, the king is going to ask you to be loyal, right? The king's going to say, don't ever say something bad about me. The king's going to say, if you're out of bounds, we're going we're to kill you. God is not asking for your loyalty. God is asking for your faithfulness. God's okay with lament. God's okay with protest. If God's not okay with protest, then we need to cut Job and about a good third of the Psalms out of the scriptures. But they're there. Because God's not so easily threatened as a king is. God doesn't have an ego that can be damaged. God's just God. And so we need to be faithful, not just loyal. Gentleness is greater than passivity. Gentleness doesn't mean that you just get kind of um, walked on like a doormat. Gentleness is about being strong and firm, but gentle. Passivity, this kind of wraps back around to an earlier one, that peace is greater than conflict avoidance. Passivity is also not peace, right? That's not, that's not the nonviolent, like passive. When we talk about passivism, that's spelled P-A-C-I-F-I-S-M, right? It comes from a word that, P-A-C, comes from a word that means peace, not P-A-S-S-I-V-E, like being passive, that, that means non-active. But again, to be gentle is to be active. To be a peacemaker is to be active. Like Christians are active. We, we live a life. We're not just passive, right? And, but sometimes we think, well, that's my faith and this is my life. And I don't like to mix the two together too much. <laughs> Except... That lacks integrity. Those two things kind of have to be held together. That's who we are. We're not just people and Christians. We're Christian people. And that should affect kind of every aspect of our life. Lastly here, self-control is greater than self-fulfillment. Again, I think this also speaks to that idea of contentment. Um, some people are really good at this. My wife is particularly strong at this, I think. Like she, delayed gratification just comes naturally to her. Like if there's something that she wants to do or wants to have, she easily puts that off and gets other things done first. Not so much me, right? I'm more of a self-fulfillment by nature guy again. But again, the way in which you live the Christian life is not just what comes natural to you, <laughs> Some of the things that come natural to me aren't so Christian. But I've read the scriptures and I've been taught the faith. 
and I'm being called to a higher ideal. There's an expectation once I'm filled with the Spirit, God will empower me and enable me and, and animate me in ways that are maybe contrary to what's natural to me. And so these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, this is the real thing, baby. This is the real thing. That's life in the Spirit. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.